Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the fourth episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Today's topic is Building Your Emotions, How Architecture Can Affect Us. With me is Susie Hodge. She is the author of the short story of architecture. The publisher is Lawrence King Publishing. Susie Hodge, M-A-F-R-S-A, is an art and design historian, author, and artist with a whopping total of 150 books published for both adults and children, mainly on art history, practical art, and history. She also writes magazine articles, web resources for museums and galleries, lectures around the world, and contributes to radio and TV news programs and documentaries. Thank you so much for joining us, Susie. Thank you, and hello. I'm pleased to be here. Wonderful. Me likewise. So glad you're here. So to begin, let's just kind of set the landscape a bit for listeners. What's the structure and content of your your book? The whole idea was I love architecture and I wanted to make it as accessible as possible for as many other people. Um, You know, we see buildings every day and uh, some of us like what places we live and work in and others don't. We all have opinions. And I wanted to make something that was really accessible. This actually went in with a series I've been writing as well. Um, I'd previously written the short story of art and I was writing the short story of modern art soon after this one. And it's it comprises mainly 50 buildings, all different kinds of buildings, and also styles, elements and materials. And it's got a, a, a unique sort of structure on each page you can cross-reference. There are cross-references so you can flick back and really use the book. And it, um, hopefully it's in succinct, understandable chunks that anyone can dip into and dip out of, whether you know about architecture or not. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think it's very accessible. And I love, you know, that you can see these these images and put the threads together. So, you know, everything is is beautifully photographed for the book. And to me, I, I really wanted to do this because I, I think architecture matters so much. The longer I'm on the planet, how I feel based on a cityscape and the buildings, uh, how I appreciate the, the little features of homes just matters more and more. And I'm increasingly seeing articles online with titles like, how do you judge a building? Does it make you feel more or less alive? Uh, you know, what are the hidden ways that architecture affects how we feel? Uh, I'm even seeing studies where people are wearing things like sweat gland or you know uh, apparatus and EEG headsets so that we can get their you know intuitive biological uh, feelings in response to these elementary uh, pieces of our landscape. So. You mentioned the the fifty buildings, and let's go there because it's really more or less evenly divided into different categories of homes and uh, buildings that have religious import and so forth. So, if you don't mind, I don't think I've ever seen this before. I'd be delighted to know if we kind of move category by category, and I'll I'll prep you for each one in turn. But if we just go through, and you might be tell me which building had the most emotional impact for you, maybe what specific emotion or emotions 
it elicited it in you and why? You know, what was it in the design concepts that uh, affected you? So let's start with maybe the oldest category here, which is the religious buildings. Is there one that really stands out for you emotionally uh, from the collection? Well, I think with buildings, it's it's as much as what you see and what you experience as your own personal experiences. So you can see a building, for example, for the first time and think, oh, that's amazing. That's a wonderful or inspiring building. But also it then might have connotations with you. So um, probably, I mean, obviously I love them all because that's why I chose each one. But for me, the Santa Maria del Fiore or Florence Cathedral has such um history so it's awe inspiring it was the cross between the gothic and the renaissance it sort of almost epitomizes how florence changed from the gothic era into the renaissance era where they were becoming more um aware of science and uh new developments it was it was a huge sort of rich time where scientists architects well architects were the artists as well artists people were developing so many new things so for me Santa Maria del Fiore is possibly my favorite I can't really say that it's my actual favorite because it I as I say I love them all but I to me that one I went to it a lot with my mum and sadly my mum died a few years ago so I've also been there with my daughter, and so it has very mixed emotions. When I went in, I I was determined the first time I went there with my daughter, having been there many times with my mum, not to get upset. And that was the one place in the whole of Florence where I did get upset, but in a good way. (laughs) So to me, it's (laughs) it's amazement and happiness. The fact that it was designed in the 13th century and wasn't finished until the 15th century, and that was by Brunelleschi, um, and he came up with so many new ideas, mainly how to paint perspective, but also that amazing dome, the brick-built dome on it. So, yeah, that's probably my favorite one out of all of them. Okay, fair enough. I I have to throw in a a pitch for Florentine ice cream as well, which is... (laughs) Some of the most fabulous on the planet. Uh, let's move on to another category. Uh, a number of buildings really signify the stature of a ruler or, you know, of civic leaders. Uh, from that category, is there maybe a, a building that stands out for you uh, emotionally? Um, well, I suppose, again, the Great Pyramid, obviously, is, is probably everyone stands in awe of that. But also, me, the idea is it's quite... I'm I'm afraid of because I think of inside. I'm not claustrophobic as far as I know, but they've got, I haven't been there, so I don't know. Maybe somebody could tell me otherwise, but they've got long tunnels that go inside to different parts of it. Now, that sounds to me quite scary in those huge, huge uh, buildings. But again, I'm going back to Italy probably for my favourite, and it's the Doge's Palace because it mixes art, architecture, and that wonderful view um, of the water out of the front and it's also it is gothic but it also mixes a bit of uh, byzantine buildings and the way it looks a bit like an ice cream from the front with the, the pink and white marble um i just i like the mixture as well that it was a, a ruler's palace but also next to it, it's quite sad and and quite dreadful that um the prison was attached to his home oh <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure I'd choose that feature from my home, yes. <laughs> well, there's the Bridge of Sighs, which is always very sad because it was the last last view they had of the world before they were in, incarcerated for prison. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> One time, my uh, my grandparents were visiting us when I lived in Italy as a boy, and uh, that was the year '66 where they had a tremendous flood, and my grandparents didn't know the language and just came to town immediately afterwards, and everyone was cleaning up. And sh- my grandmother said to some local, "Do you always have to clean up like this on Mondays?" <laughs> having no idea that it was one of the most historic floods the city ever <laughs> suffered from. So uh, anyway, m- moving moving on. So let's get a little bit more contemporary. There are also buildings that really celebrate uh, a city in terms of its, you know, civic nature, uh, particularly cultural, you know, institutions that may be a setting for an opera house, that kind of thing. Uh, anything from that category, maybe? that uh, stands out for you emotionally? Well, again, I'm going to pick more than one, I'm afraid, but I'll try and stick to just the one. Obviously, I, I think everybody loves Sydney Opera House because it's so iconic of Sydney, um, designed to look like sails of, of a boat on water, which it really does, and help, that also helps with the acoustics. Um, it was all to do with the competition. A lot of these buildings were uh, competition winners, but one that stands out for me, and I suppose it's because I'm English, um, is the Palace of Westminster, uh, because it's to me it, it gives me optimism and hope that our, it's the seat of the English gov, the British government, and you hope that they'll run the country properly. But it's also I love the the mixture of the Gothic revival. There was it was built by two men. Well, the architects were two two main men, Barry and Pugin. And Barry was, he was more of a classicist, but Pugin was very religious and um, loved the idea of the Gothic revival, pointing, making spires that pointed up to God and using ornament only after the structure had been settled. But also in the middle, there's a, a sort of pointed um, tower, and that was built by the engineer. Barry, the main architect, didn't want that, but it, it gives um, fresh air throughout the whole building. But also the interior, which you can't see in my book, but the interior is just as focused on the Gothic revival and inspired the arts and crafts, well, helped to inspire the arts and crafts movement. Okay, well, I, I'm grateful that they have some fresh air. I think all politics could use some fresh air these days. So thank God the engineer played his role. Um, on terms of buildings, uh, skyscraper buildings in particular now, moving kind of into the, the business realm of those 50 buildings, uh, just one last category there. I think we're going to skip over the houses for now. We're going to come back to houses a bit later. So just with the skyscrapers, anything and other business buildings, anything that stands out for you emotionally? Um, well, emotionally, the Chrysler building, I suppose that does for anyone who loves Art Deco, which I do. Um, it was a, That also was a bit of a contest between two architects to get the tallest building in New York City at the time. But um, I suppose I love the Seagram building by Mies van der Rohe. In also in New York City, because when I was studying architecture um, at A-level at school, part of my art history A-level, um, that was really one of the, that whole area of the Chicago and New York skyscrapers that really inspired me. And I just, I love the fact it's so pared down. You know, he didn't come up with um, uh, Less Is More, although he used it a lot. It was Peter Behrens who first came up with Less Is More. But you can see why. Mies van der Rohe followed that maxim the whole of his life. If you look at that beautiful glass building before, I mean, we have hundreds of glass buildings now, but the steel and glass structures that he produced were among the first, probably were the first. Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a striking, lovely building. Absolutely. That, well, that now, uh, Art Deco and that whole period of yeah. New York architecture has some, some wonderful 
things that it's brought to the city. Let's maybe move a little bit over to the architects because uh, you mentioned Mies van der Rohe and certainly architects are, many of them are famous for uh, not just their striking buildings, but their rather striking personalities. Yeah. Um, I wanted to settle on three of them if we could. Uh, one that will be known to anyone who's listening is going to be Frank Lloyd Wright. Anything you might offer as uh, additional insights, a little juicy tidbits you picked up about his personalities, foibles, and, and how it helped to maybe impact or is reflected in the buildings he designed. In your book, you have uh, the Falling Water Building, for instance. Well, house. the Falling Water Building is also one of my most favorite buildings. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright was quite a colorful character. He designed over a thousand buildings throughout his life. I think over 500 were actually made. And he really changed urban planning and um, the whole idea of using nature. Uh, it's it's quite strange to think that we now all try and use as much as many natural resources and we're trying to help the environment but he was way ahead of that but he was quite amusing um one of his quotes was a doctor can bury his mistakes but an architect can only advise his clients to plant vines um and he also said give me the luxuries of life and i will willingly do without the necessities but um he did <laughs> he had great vision he called it organic architecture his own style and he 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 really wanted to make property that people lived in and worked in better for all of us it was long before we talked about the, the use the words depression or talked about mental health he knew that it, by using natural sources and making buildings look part of their environment or more part of their environment than most buildings did, that he would help people's souls who lived and worked around them or in them. Okay. One of the things that struck me, I'm, a, of course, a facial coder, so I like to look at photographs, in this case, of the architects and see if I can see any kind of uh, telltale signs. Uh, George Orwell, the writer, said that by the age of 50, a man has the face he deserves. So naturally, I wanted to see what kind of face Frank Lloyd Wright might deserve. A couple of things struck me. One is um, he tended to have the corner of the mouth go down in a sign of sadness, and he didn't smile a whole lot. It seemed to me that there's a constant striving, uh, an edginess to him. Uh, and I, I think of Falling Water, which I've been to on a couple of occasions, and just how narrow the hallways are and how low the ceiling is because, of course, he didn't want you to linger there. And he sure made you know, a, a strong impression on you that you did not want to linger there because it's not very inviting. Uh, that is a rather uncompromising vision. Maybe works for a lot of people. It's a lovely building. Uh, but the hallways are are not the lovely part, as he, you know, rightly intended, I guess. Well, it's quite dark. If you look at the, uh, it's cantilevered over the waterfall, which is amazing from the outside. Yes. Inside, it's quite dark and heavy. So yeah, there are some some faults there. But um, he had he also had a very colourful life. Um, a lot of children, several mistresses, several wives. So I think maybe that's why his mouth turned around down at the corner. <laughs> He was just worn out trying to earn money to keep them all. Yeah, he certainly made his life complicated. We, we can <laughs> say that. Uh, how about Le Corbusier? I'm probably not saying it correctly, but um, oh, I think what about? You probably are. I, um, well, he he was born in Switzerland and um, became a French citizen, and he also a, a huge urban planner had visions for the future. Sadly, a lot of his ideas sort of led rise to the. Um, high-rise blocks which weren't any good for morale and, and people's happiness happiness quota really but he was he was extremely clever he 
almost single-handedly um, invented. Oh, well, that's a bit mean of me to say. No, he didn't almost. He was one of a few people who invented the international style, which was a completely new way of designing mainly domestic homes, flat roofs, white buildings, asymmetrical. Um, his idea, he, he wrote the five points of architecture, which was that buildings had to have either horizontal or, and or ribbon windows, flat roofs, so you could have a roof garden or somewhere to sit on the top of your, your house, um, white stucco, so it was, it was startling, with sharp corners, but also asymmetrical. But he also recommended pilotis, which are like um, uh, structures to hold it, hold the building above the ground. So it almost looks like it's floating. And that has, it's, re- it's remained quite fashionable. Um, even now, it's, I, I think at the time, it's probably more shocking than it is the same as, as most designs and creativity. If it's, if it's innovative, it's often very shocking when it's first it first appears and then people get used to it and decide that they actually quite like it. Oh, and he also um, recommended quite the opposite of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, a free facade. He didn't like to have too many supporting walls. It was more pillars inside and you could move. That was a bit more like the Japanese style. Japan was always a big influence. Well, I, I find it interesting with him because I, I balance two different kind of impulses in my own personal reaction to him. One is, even as a boy, the first time I ever saw any of his buildings or things that were, you know, uh, you know, influenced by him or you know uh, that he inspired. You know, the 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 floating quality and the ribbon windows just grabbed my fancy immediately. On the other hand, I find myself wrestling with his perhaps most famous comment, where he says, "A house is a building for living in." Uh, I find it hard to relate to that, I confess. A house is a machine for living in, yes. A machine, yes. Yes, yeah, a machine I, yeah. for living in, yes. But I suppose what he meant was it had to function for, uh, in the right way for us all. When we live in our homes, we you know, we make things suit us. I suppose that's all he meant, really. Okay. I, well, that, that, that could well be. I, I, I don't know. The, the machine <laughs> word got my attention in part because when I did look at his facial expressions... <laughs> Uh, there is a way in which you can show anger where the lips don't just press together, but you actually get a bulge below the middle of the lower <laughs> lip. And he was given to that. <laughs> so, you know, he might have had a temper. Um, I, I don't know if that's where the machine comes from, if he <laughs> views us as all little cogs in the machine. But uh, I, I'm guessing that his interactions with his clients might have been quite interesting uh, if he was given such a fairly believe- strong sign of anger. He did believe in space and light, whereas so Frank Lloyd Wright believed in uh, using natural forms. If you take one thing away from each of them, um, the famous architects, and he believed in space and light, which I think probably helps our mentality, our our morale. But yes, okay. He also said, 100 times I've thought New York is a catastrophe and 50 times it's a beautiful catastrophe. So (laughs) That's that that quote I enjoy maybe more, although the other one's intriguing. Um, how about Gaudi? I mean, every time you get to go to Barcelona, that means it's a good year. Um, it's it's a lot of fun to see Gaudi's work. Um, what about him? Any anecdotes, insights you might offer on, on the force of personality in case of Antoni Gaudi? Well, I don't think Gaudi would have produced the work he does now if he was alive now because he was given free reign. I mean, he was allowed to do what he wanted. So he was really an artist architect. He was a devout Catholic. So most of his buildings are to do with 
God and nature. I mean, one of his quotations is the straight line belongs to man, the curved line belongs to God. Um, and nothing <laughs> is invented for it's written in nature first. So, all, <laughs> um, but he, he worked almost um, in an impromptu way where he knew what he wanted to do, but he, he didn't really have the such set plans as you'd have to have now and it would have to be passed with all the bureaucracy. He was allowed to have a bit more free reign. So, for example, the Sagrada Familia, which I nearly chose as my favourite because it's so unusual. Um, that's It's like a sculpture. If anyone um, listening has seen it, it's got different facades where there are sculptures in it. And he used people from Barcelona as his models. And it, it tells the story of, the, of Christ's story, the New Testament stories. And even the pinnacles at the top are supposed to look like bishops' hats and um, the, the glass that he used was, reflects colour, well, it, as it does in most churches, reflects colour to, to make you think of wonderful, happy, spiritual thoughts. But he also, in his other architecture, he made mosaics. It's called Trencardis, and he broke china and glass just randomly and made these wonderful mosaics all over his building. You can see that in Parkwell. So he, he seems like a a very upbeat person, but I'm not sure if he was. I think he was quite quiet. You'll, you'll know more about that. Well, I really expected that he would be the most joyful of these three architects, and it is true that he manages a bit more of a smile than the <laughs> other two, certainly more than Cabousier. Um, but the most notable thing, and actually across all of them, was just how much his eyes were wide. I, I wonder if that's almost an attribute one needs as a as an architect, because when your eyes go wide, of course, you're able to take in more information. You are scanning your horizon effectively. <laughs> but I was really struck by relative lack of happiness in all of them and the eyes being so wide, so attentive. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because what struck me about, I've written a couple of architecture books on architecture and many on fine art. And a lot of artists, not all by any means, a lot of artists die young, but a lot of architects live to ripe old ages. So <laughs> I don't know if that's got anything to do with personality. <laughs> I'll have to investigate that on, a, on another day. Um, let's finally get to the houses, because I think that's something that uh, listeners can relate to. And uh, I had shared with you that Better Homes and Gardens here in the States had uh, run a piece not long ago about the 10 favorite housing styles. And I asked you to you know, think about it a bit and see if there was some that uh, pertained fairly well to things in your book. So one of the ones that I believe you selected was in terms of the Red House. So if you could Tell us a bit about the uh, the building itself, and then uh, how it ties into uh, what's going on in America. Oh, the Red House is really the start of the arts and crafts, which became called the Craftsman style in America. So, Craftsman style houses. I suppose the Red House was the original. It's the original for arts and crafts, and the original for, for Craftsman style. And it uses vernacular materials, so it's material locally sourced materials where possible. Um, the interior doesn't dictate, uh, the interior does dictate the exterior, not the other way around, if you see what I mean. You don't, the, the builders, who was Philip Webb, and uh, they were Philip Webb with William Morris, who was sort of the father of the arts and crafts. Um, they wanted to make rooms that were not machines for them to live in, but it was, it was for William, um, William Morris and his new wife, Jane, Jane Morris. And they wanted to make the building perfect for the two of them and their friends. So they built it around the rooms, around the spaces that they wanted. And uh, William Morris and Philip Webb 
both believed they were a strong socialists, even though they were quite wealthy, they believed in making better provision for the servants. So their servants' rooms are as big as their own, almost as big as their own rooms. And there was lots of space and outside space. So they use a mixture of windows. They've got sash windows, casement windows, circular windows. Most of it is built in red brick. It's um, in Kent in England. So the red brick was, as far as I know, as, as locally sourced as it could be. And pointed, the highly pointed roofs were came from, if we go back to Pugin and the Gothic revival in the uh, Palace of Westminster or the Houses of Parliament, um, it pointing up to God. It's all, uh, they were Catholics, but they weren't necessarily as devout as Pugin, but it all came from that style. You know, things move away from religious connotations very often. But a bit like going back to link it with Le Corbusier, though it's completely different, the green, the green of the grass and the uh, all the vegetation around it was supposed to set off the red of the building in exactly the same way as the green of the grass sets off the white buildings by Corbusier. Okay. Well, I must have been I'm a huge pre-Raphaelite fan, and that's you know another tie-in for, for oh, William yes. Morris, that desire to get back to pre-industrial England in this yes. case and uh, approach things at a more human scale. I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, we, we've been belaboring this quote about men and buildings as machines, but one of the things I love about this is that he made sure that the the uh, servants' quarters were of nice size and dimensions, none, none of these pinched hallways for them. And that does tie into his politics. And it makes me wonder a bit if those who like the crafts movement, the arts and crafts movement, might even have almost a, you know, a undisclosed political agenda that there's something very humane about how this gets approached. Well, but, the, the um, whole part of the arts and crafts was to, yes, get away from the Industrial Revolution, get away from mass production and go back to the sort of mid- medieval era where um, craftsmen enjoy their work and produce quality goods together in groups. And that's how they work. That's how the arts and crafts groups work. Yes, the pre-Raphaelites were all part of it. They were all friends. And actually everything inside the house, from the tiles to the bedding to the furniture, they all made between them, all the the friends who were arts and crafts followers or inventors, whatever you prefer to call them. And yes, they worked together in that medieval style rather than sending things off to the factory or buying things from the factories. So that was all part of building building a happier life, a happier way of life. Yeah, that, that, that's part of what I, I mean, I like the building absolutely in its own right, but the the spirit of that or the uh, kind of the philosophy almost of uh, craftsmen, of making it personal, uh, getting out of the industrial, the factory, I, I guess I'm revealing my biases here and why I struggle with that quote regarding the machine. Um, there was a couple other ones we were going to look at. One was ranch-style homes and, and how that might tie into... Uh, Le Corbusier. Um, yes, Le Corbusier was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he was more or less, he was one of the inventors of the um, international style. Not the only one, of course. But um, yeah, his idea of um, focusing on the horizontal, having white stucco or white plastered rendered buildings, so they sort of gleam in the light. And having flat roofs, his idea was to have flat roofs so you could have gardens on them, but the, the ranch style doesn't necessarily have gardens on the top. Um, and the pilotes, which are like the columns underneath, they're also not, you don't see those quite so often. But the idea of having um, an asymmetrical building, 
focusing on the horizontal, having lots of light with ribbon windows, if possible, and different uh, proportioned rooms inside. I think it's the, the light that's the, the focus here and um, simplicity inside. Going back to, I know, I know it's not your favourite, but the um, machine for living in, he meant it was more <laughs> utilitarian. I always think all of us, and I'm looking around my room that is full of thousands of books, we have far too much stuff. Sure. Well, I, I was very surprised when I started thinking about this in terms of the ranch style, because it turns out ranch style homes, which I so often think of from the, the 50s and even the 60s and yeah. certainly post-World War II, uh, apparently it began way back in the 30s. And it's uh, very attractive because they're they're easy in terms of the modular structure of them yeah. to you know do additions and remodels and so forth. So there is a a great flexibility there that's helped keep it uh, in the public's favor. There was one other we were going to go to, which was the contemporary style and something from Tokyo. If you can say a bit more about that. Oh, yes. Um, contemporary style, again, it kind of follows on from the ranch style. And that's what I was saying. There's a lack of ornamentation, but it's not that it's um, it's not there because people uh, can't afford it or it's just it's that whole clean look it's easier to clean it's easier to to maintain but yeah the moriyama house which is by nishizawa in tokyo was a it's an experimental building and it's it's made of prefabricated blocks and they're um they have huge windows they're easy to set up they're easy to move around and even though it sounds quite impersonal it's actually, you can make it more personal because there's not one of these big windows looking out onto another one. They're all um, looking away from each other and different people live in them. So it's it's able to, because it's Tokyo, so it's a, a city where there isn't much space. It, they can be built on top of each other and side by side. And it's rather clever, a bit like um, Lego or something like that, that they can move around, move these buildings around. So it, it was an experiment that worked. I'm not sure... How many more have been built? But Moriyama House was built in 2002. They might be building more with modifications. The windows, for example, a lot of them open. There are balconies, and um, it's all is all quite cleverly done. The way it all interconnects and interlocks, but keeps people's privacy as well. Yeah, no, I, I did think of Lego. I must confess, it's very <laughs> modular about it. It has that adaptation. But I, I, you know, when I looked at the photograph in your book, I, it was just charming. I mean, that was just my first impression, despite all the limitations that are imposed on you by the uh, density of Tokyo. It's it's just a, it's a charming thing that he pulled off. It is sweet, isn't it? Because part of it with those huge windows and then the other parts where there are no windows. So you, you do get your privacy and also, uh, yeah, um, French, well, not French windows, uh, sliding windows, sliding doors. So the space is kept it, it, all down to space, isn't it? That's what it that's what it's based on keeping as much making as much space for the individual as can be possible in a city as densely populated yeah to me it was um you know beyond the design it was a nice instance i thought of a really uh a sensitivity to what you could do and needed to do to give people some some opportunity for breathing space uh given again the density speaking of uh, emotional intelligence i mean obviously when people uh, consider their homes. Uh, sometimes they're just going to buy it as is, and it's a style that appeals to them. Other times they might uh, design the house. They, they're going to make some renovations to it. 
Uh, but they have options, of course. Is there anything that, you know, I know this is a bit of a stretch, but if you're thinking in terms of what you learned from the book and as you thought about designs and, the, of course, the designs we live in, these homes, is there anything that's a, a takeaway for the, the average listener thinking about how they might view, think about, apply emotional intelligence to their own, their, their own uh, you know, living abodes? Well, you think that architectures around us um, all the time. It's where we work, worship, relax. And it's more than just a built environment. It's always part of our culture. I mean, as we've just seen, Tokyo is similar but different to Europe and America's similar but different, say, to buildings in Egypt. Um, so it is, it's a representation of how we see ourselves and how and the world around us. And, and similarly, obviously, in a big way, our homes, even even if we have the smallest home, even if we only have a room in a home, it's a representation of ourselves. And I think that if you read the book, um, you can, I know I get very involved with how that when I was researching it, um, how the architects think. So, for example, I said that Frank Lloyd Wright loved to use natural materials. As we've discovered, some of them were quite heavy and didn't always work. Um, Le Corbusier, who is one of my favourite architects because it's his clean lines. There were lots of problems with um, rust coming through. There were beading on the corners of some of his white buildings. So there's there's often problems that we discover afterwards. But what I do is I like to take away the bits that I understand about each of them and then think, how can I interpret that? And I think Sterile concrete buildings can really, or unimaginative buildings, can really cause us stress. But if we feel relaxed, happy and engaged in a space, then it's going to help us enormously. And I think start by, and I'm the worst one, I have some rooms that are decluttered and some that are not at all. Start by decluttering and then think think what you want. But also, um, one of the things you can see in the book, in the photos, is which direction they face. You know, if you have a north-facing room, for example, great for painting in, but probably best not to paint it blue or cool grey. Best to paint it in warmer tones or lighter tones. And I'm, I'm, I suppose, I'm, or oh, that's why I keep saying I like Le Corbusier, but I like a lot of them as well. I like light, so if you can keep it, we do need to cover our windows for privacy and for warmth but if you can keep your windows as as clear as possible that sort of thing and I think it is obviously it's down to the individual but I always find that light is a big uplifter I think it helps to bring up our emotions and and keep us positive but you've got to be happy in your environment so whatever you do even if you make a mistake forgive yourself <laughs> you can always change it you can always paint sure. it well i i think the light is immensely important i mean if uh if i'm having a more difficult day there's nothing better than just getting outside and realizing the sky is very high above you and to, you're rather in, un, insignificant in a way and uh the problems are even more insignificant they will go away but the sky <laughs> will still be there That's and uh, yeah so i you know light light is a great thing um helps bring perspective for one thing so this is probably very unfair of you but just in, in a bit of a close here sure. i want to play a little bit of stump the chump because there was a article i saw that was which room do americans value most in their homes so i'm going to have you guess which home do you think on average uh americans thought was their their uh the one they valued the most is it their bedroom where they sleep no, it turns out it's a tie between the living room and the kitchen. The kitchen. I was going to say kitchen next. 20, 28% in each case. But uh, I'll make this one. It's probably a bit easier. That's the tie. <laughs> but in that tie, 
by gender, which one did the men go for and which one did the women favor? Oh, this is really sexist. Am I going to say the men go to the living room and the women go to the kitchen? I bet it's the other way around. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you go with your instincts. Bingo. You, you got it correct. How about if we go by age, boomers versus millennials? What's their favorite or most valued home in the house in each case? Boomers versus millennials, i.e. first-time yep. buyers. Oh, right. Okay. Millennials, it's the living room. And baby boomers can... <sighs> Dining room? No, kitchen. Kitchen again. Okay. Well, actually, the, the boomers like the living room, maybe because that's where the TV is. I, I do remember this wonderful joke from Roseanne Barr who said by the age uh, that a woman reaches her sexual peak in life about the same time as her husband realizes he has a favorite chair. So maybe just maybe the boomers have settled in in front of the TV set by that point. It turns out that for the millennials, the first-time buyers who are much younger, the room in the house they value most, it's their master bedroom. And I, I won't comment further than that. Uh, but I will say for those over 65, turns out that their favorite room is none other than the garage, which may or may not reflect the state of their marriage at that point that one of them is choosing to retreat to the garage. I was going to say, are we going, we're being sexist again? Is that men? <laughs> Um, it is men more so than women. Yes, indeed. We used to say my dad used to have a garage and we used to call it his man cave because he always retreated there. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that's if it's not the TV set, it seems to be the garage. Uh, <laughs> some, some attempt to find a, a man cave, as it were. So anyway, Susie, it's been a delight, but our, our time is about up here. I want to thank you for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number four, Building Your Emotions how architecture can affect us. To check out other episodes or my books, lectures, and so forth, uh, there is my company's website at the obligatory three W's, sensorylogic.com. Uh, if you have questions, follow-up questions from my guests today, feel free to email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you enjoyed the show, by all means, please give us a five-star rating or review online. Every little bit helps when you're building a new show and trying to garner social media support. Finally, I'd like to close every episode with an appropriate epigram. Uh, we've been talking about architecture today with the delightful Susie and uh, a Brit. So I want to go to a fellow Brit and uh, none other than Winston Churchill in this case, who said, we shape our buildings and afterwards, our buildings shape us. So true, I believe. Anyway, until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you so much.